0: So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. The point is that this is not about magnanimity of
1: faith. Did I say that right? I'm twisting over my braces, right? Magnanimity of faith, right? It's not about the enormous size of your faith. Faith, the size of a mustard seed. So ask with what little faith you have. But in the end, but in the end, leave the answer in the hands of the Lord. Leave the answer in the hands of the Lord. Let your prayer always be sealed with your will be done. Despite what some suggest, that is not a faithless statement. It is a clear statement that the Lord himself told us to pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, on earth, we're still here. So it applies to our lives as well. And then as you leave your situation in the hands of the Lord, you might very well find that the Lord for his own purposes and reasons simply does not want to grant you the healing or whatever it is else that you're asking him for. It might be that he's working something else out in your life as he was the apostle Paul or in the life of others like us, as we look at the apostle Paul, aren't we grateful that the Lord didn't necessarily heal him? How much more of a lesson are we finding in the fact that the Lord did not? learning about god's sufficiency by looking at paul's life we don't know what the lord is working out in various circumstances that we find unpleasant and want him to remove but he chooses to let those things remain in our lives we don't know what he's working out you know i I remember my friend dave dave had terrible cancer great guy my golfing buddy right but Dave died of cancer. But in the beginning, when Dave first had it, he, he did all these things. He, he, he wanted to stand by faith in what the Lord, you know, says he can heal. He believed the Lord could heal. He, he prayed with confidence and faith in the Lord, asking for healing. Even at one point, he said, I think the Lord's going to heal me. I think the Lord's going to heal me. I had no reason not to think he wouldn't. I know the Lord heals. And yet along the way, Dave began to see that his life was fading away and either the lord was going to do something incredibly miraculous or the lord was going to call him home and at one point he had looked at me and he said to me he says you know Randy he said i think the lord's just calling me home and i'm really okay with that he said because you know what he said my illness and what i've gone through has touched an awful lot of people that i've been trying to witness to for a very long time and never paid attention And now they hang on every word and everything I'm saying in the life that I'm sharing with them. And that just blew me. I mean, I wanted to weep. I mean, I did weep and I almost weep now thinking about that. Not that I miss Dave and I do, but, but the faith of that. And, and, you know, Dave would have said, I have faith the size of a mustard seed. Well, I'm just going to tell you this. His mustard seed was a whole lot bigger than mine. It's a whole lot bigger than mine. He got to the place where he understood that God's doing something different. I don't know all the ramifications, He's decided this is my time, and he's not going to heal me of this, not because he can't, not because he doesn't even want to, but because it's not serving his purposes for what he really has that's best. It might be that the Lord knows something about you or your own life situation that that healing would not even be the best thing for you at times. I, I think of King Hezekiah. You guys know King Hezekiah, right? But King Hezekiah, you know that there's, there's more said about Hezekiah. It's, it's less verbiage said in the scriptures about him, but there's more powerful statements said about him than there even was David, of uh, being a, a godly king. David was a man after God's own heart, but this guy was known as a godly king in God's eyes, in a very powerful way. One of the greatest kings of Israel, and he truly loved the Lord, and he was powerfully used by him, and he was a man of tremendous faith. Tremendous faith in the Lord. His prayers were absolutely powerful. In fact, Isaiah chapter 37 tells us of a prayer that he prayed for deliverance uh, uh, for the nation when the Assyrians were were laying siege to Jerusalem. And it was a powerful prayer that that God responded to by sending a single angel to break that siege by wiping out 185,000 Assyrians in one night. But later in his life, he prayed another prayer recorded in Isaiah chapter 38. It's a prayer where where it's not even so much a prayer as it is just a begging and a pleading and a crying and a wailing for God to heal him from some disease that he had that he was dying from. And God granted him his request and gave him 15 more years of life. Divine healing, right? It's always good. Well, maybe. This is... But, you know, but, and this is a huge but, in those 15 years of extra life, two significant events happened, things which, which would not have happened had God not answered his prayer, or, or at least it wouldn't have happened because, at least it wouldn't have happened because of Hezekiah being alive, okay? Events that put a terrible blemish, really put a, a terrible period on the end of the sentence of his life. At the end, which was a tremendous record, but it's a blemish on the end of his life. And here are the two events. Number one, after God healed him, feeling very cocky and prideful because of the healing that God had given to him, feeling spiritually special because of what God had done for him, Hezekiah made an incredibly stupid mistake. Isaiah 39 verses 1 and 2 describes it. Isaiah 39 verse 1, at that time... Meredek baledon the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah was pleased with them and showed them the house of his treasures, the silver and gold, the spices and precious ointment, and all his armory, all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. This action by Hezekiah, driven by fleshy pride as a result of God answering his prayer for healing, ended up planting the initial seeds that would eventually blossom in the hearts of the Babylonians and would cause them to come and invade and to conquer the southern kingdom of Judah and take them into captivity. Second, three years after his healing, he gave birth to a son, who he named Manasseh, who eventually succeeded him as king. Manasseh grew up during that time when Hezekiah was, was selfishly enjoying the extra 15 years of life that his prayer had, had yielded for him. And, and it was at a time which he cared little or nothing for the future of his kingdom and his children. And I'll clarify that a little bit more for you in a moment. It was a period of time that scripture reflects that his focus was more about himself than anything else, which the way he prayed for healing was as well, right? By begging and crying and to get the Lord to do this for him. It was about him, not about what would be best. In fact, Hezekiah's self-centeredness was clearly revealed in his response to Isaiah when Isaiah told him that his foolish act of showing the treasures of, of, of the kingdom to the Babylonians would result in the Babylonians coming to conquer the kingdom. Listen to Hezekiah's response to the rebuke that Isaiah gives him. Then Isaiah, this is Isaiah 39, verses 3 through 8. Isaiah 39, verse 3. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, "What did these men say, and from where did they come to you?" So Hezekiah said, "They came to me from a far country, from Babylon." Almost like he wants Isaiah to be impressed, doesn't he? They came to see me all the way from Babylon, right? And and he said, "What have they seen in your house?" Like he didn't already know. Isaiah knew because the Lord had shown him. And Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. (laughs) And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon." You just blew it, Hezekiah. Look at what you've done. Look what you did in your spiritual, arrogant pride. Look at what you've done. Pay attention to this, verse 8. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good, for he said, at least there will be peace and truth in my days. That's astounding, isn't it? That's an astounding response, and it shows self-centeredness. What he's saying is, oh, that's great. At least it ain't going to happen on my watch. I'll be going. I don't care less about my kids, my grandkids. doesn't matter what their future is. As long as I have peace in my time, I'm good to go. These were the years and the climate in which his son Manasseh grew up. Now, remember, Manasseh is born three years after the divine healing. So he's growing up in this environment. And he's being influenced by this. And as a result, Manasseh himself will turn out to be one of the most extremely self-centered rulers of Israel that will be in power. And, And he's going to lead the people into levels of sin and idolatry, which his father never led them into in his lifetime. And why not? I mean, why not? After all, the curse of God was upon him because of his father's prideful actions with the Babylonian emissaries. After becoming king, Manasseh likely figured, as long as I'm cursed, I may as well live it up while I have the time. He'll later repent. Actually, it's a quite incredible repentance. He'll later repent, but it'll be too late for the nation. The seeds of the kingdom's destruction were sown by his actions. So here's, I know I belabored on this this morning, we're obviously not going to get far today, but you know what? Here's the point to all of this, and I think it's important, what you want and, and, and what you ask for by faith might not be wrong for you to ask for that, but it might not be the best for you or for others. And only God knows what's best. Only He knows. And pounding our fists and naming and claiming it might sound spiritual, but in reality, it is not spiritual. In fact, it is not only unscriptural, but it can be incredibly foolish. Yeah, James is right when James says in James 4.2 that you don't have because you don't ask. So ask, but don't demand. So ask, but don't demand. Let your prayers be faith-filled and yet have the greater faith in God to trust that He knows the best answer to your request, whether it be for healing or anything else in your life. What you see as the most important thing to have, He may see as the most destructive thing for you to have. What you see as the most important thing for your life, he may see as the most uh, obstructive thing to your witness or to what he's trying to work out for your life and for others and for his own plan. Ask, but have the faith to end your asking with your will be done. Do you know I think that takes greater faith than the name and claim it? It takes greater faith to entrust what I've asked for to the hands of the Lord and to say, your will be done. You do what you think is best now. I have blown people away over the years who, you know, hold firmly to this idea that we've got to just, you know, we got to be faith filled and it's the way we ask and we got to do that. I'm a faithful person, but but I'll blow people away sometimes when I get to it and say, now let's leave it in the Lord's hands and let's see what he does. It's like, I've had people tell me, well, you shouldn't do that because that's negativity that you're bringing into the prayer and the Lord doesn't honor that. That's a lack of faith. And it's like, no, I have great faith. I have faith enough to trust the Lord to do for you what's really needed. It may not be what you want in the end, but I promise you this it'll always be for your benefit. Or are you telling me I might, I could die. And, and how's that going to be? Well, then you're going to be in the kingdom and you'll see all the benefit of the blessing of what you're entrusting your life, even to the point that he's taken your life in that illness, how much he was able to use that in other things. Because you'll see it all. You'll see all the connections to it all. I think maybe we won't care. <laughs> It'll just be the reward. Here's the reward. You've done good. You know, what I do? I don't know. You've done good. I know what you did. You don't need to know. You've done good. Take the reward. So I hope you get the point to this. I I felt this was important to share with you guys this morning. Yeah, here in this passage, he heals all the people that are there at this specific event that, that came to him asking for that healing. But it doesn't mean that we extrapolate that now into a teaching that promotes the idea that if you ask, you should be healed, and if you're not, it's because your faith is deficient or the faith of those praying for you is deficient. That's just not scriptural. But here the people come with Jesus with their illness and their demonic possessions and, and, and for the purpose of revealing his divine authority, which is really what this is about. He's backing up his teaching with this to show them who he is and why he can say the things he's saying. He does in this situation heal and deliver them all. But then he moves into the more important mission that he's come to fulfill. He begins to teach them. It says in verse 20, Then he lifted up his eyes towards his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. We now begin a passage that is covered only here and in Matthew's gospel. Only two gospels cover this teaching in this way. And Bible scholars have mixed opinions as to whether this is the same event as Matthew's account, or if it's a different event, but basically the same teaching. Now, Matthew's account is commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. While Luke's account here has come to be referred to as the teaching on the plane or the sermon on the plane. And they call it that because it's based on the description here that he gives us, that Luke gives us of where it took place. He says he came down with them and stood on a level place. In other words, he was on a plane. It could be a different sermon, given at a different place that Luke is presenting to us as compared with Matthew's, but it could also be a summary of the same one that at some point, you know, there's just a summary of it that he's giving of the Sermon of the Mount, and, and that what he did is, even on the Sermon of the Mount, some scholars would say he still stood on a level place, and it could be. But regardless of the location, the location is not as important as the content being presented. And the content presented is basically the same as that with Matthew Matthew Records, but in a briefer format. And it's important for us to understand that even if this is two separate events, the message Jesus is presenting is the message that will dominate his ministry and not just a single sermon. This will be the point of his preaching all the way through. It's, and, and likely Jesus repeated his teachings as he went from place to place to place because the theme and the message was very simple. You know, I often say to people as we work our way ever so slowly through the whole Bible, the one thing that's remarkable to me is it sounds like I'm repeating a lot of the same stuff. That's because I am, because the Bible is filled with a lot of simple things, constantly repeated. You could narrow them down. I won't say it's like seven or eight, but I'm just telling you, it is amazing how the Bible doesn't have a a huge, complex network of ideas. There's a whole lot of different descriptions and angles looking at the same hard issues. see, So it wouldn't be unusual for Jesus to be in different places giving this same basic teaching. But as such, this isn't just some eloquent sermon that he's delivering, but it tells us that this is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, pouring out his very heart and soul to mankind and sharing with them his vision and his expectations for the kind of life that he wants them and us to live. The kind of life he always intended for people to live. The kind of life that he would make possible for us to live. A life of true righteousness and holiness. It's not a lifestyle that the world or, or even the self-righteous of this world can relate to or understand. In fact, in many ways, it will be the opposite of how the world thinks and how the self-righteous think and live but it's the way of life that describes what true spirituality is all about. It's a way of thinking and living that can only be produced through Jesus's work in us and and, and not through self-effort or the keeping of the law or by trying to be good enough. This is what he's describing is kingdom living that he'll be describing. Kingdom thinking. That he's trying to birth in our hearts as we yield to and look to him by faith. And so Jesus begins the sermon, this message, with a passage that we commonly refer to as the Beatitudes. I like that name that it's been given over the years, and I like it because it, it describes exactly what he's communicating. Be attitudes. Be attitudes, right? It's the way God intends for us to be in our thinking and in our behaviors. Now you'll notice I said. It's what he intends for us to be. It doesn't say it's what he expects us to do. We have a hard time doing these things. We couldn't keep Ten Commandments. How are we even going to keep this, right? It's still the same dilemma. So it's not what he intends for you and me to do. But he does intend for us to be these things. It's a way of life that will lead to, to true happiness if we yield ourselves to the capacity he's given us to think like this and to live like this. You'll note that Jesus begins each of the attitudes that we're going to look at with blessed are you. Blessed are you. Quite literally, he is saying when he says that, blessed are you, what he's saying is, oh, how happy are you? Oh, how happy are you? That's because the lifestyle and the attributes that Jesus will describe leads to happiness for those who yield themselves to it. It's not the happiness that we think of in a worldly sense. It's not an emotional happiness. It's not that sense of good feeling that we have all the time in this life that we associate happiness with. That kind of happiness, even though we seek it in this life, it's momentary, right? It's fleeting. It does not last. But the happiness that Jesus is referring to, the happiness associated with the attitudes and behaviors that he'll be describing to us in these Beatitudes is a happiness that transcends the happiness of this world. As Barclay explains in his commentary, he said, Jesus is describing that joy which has its secret within itself, that joy which is serene and untouchable and self-contained, that joy which is completely independent of all the chances and changes Of life. You know, I enjoy being happy. (laughs) If you haven't noticed, I love to joke around a lot, sometimes too much. You know, I just know I do sometimes just way too much. You know, and Cindy says sometimes she looks at me and says, You need to grow up, you know? Then when I grow up, people look at me and say, "You're so serious." You know, it's like well, I can't get this right. You know, I, I like having a good time. I was like that in the army too. I, I wasn't one of those guys that just always had that sour face on my, you know, going on my face. I did when I needed to, but I learned the art of putting it on and taking it off. I just like being happy. I like that. I like movies that make me laugh. You know, Cindy's funny because she laughs. But she says, you know, we'll go to a movie, and it's hysterical. And I remember back in her college days, we went to see one. I don't remember what it was anymore. I mean, I literally was off the seat and on the floor. I was on my knees on the floor laughing so hard. And I'm looking, and there's Cindy. And I said, don't you think it's funny? She said, it's hysterical. And I'm like, but you're not laughing. She said, I'm laughing on the inside. I'm not one of those guys. I tend to laugh, like, till I cry, kind of on the outside. I love being happy. I like those things. But I have learned the truth of this. The stuff in this life that makes me happy, it's good for the hour I'm watching that movie or two hours I'm watching that movie and maybe a little residual effect, right? Or if we go do something fun, we go on vacation, it's great till we come back. You know, even the physical things, that I talked about in the beginning of the mountaintop experiences—not the the spiritual part of it, but the physical part of it. being away, being with other brothers in the Lord, getting to to hang out with people, and just be away from all the stuff—that even begins to fade over time, right? The stuff, the happiness that this world gives—it's it, fleeting, and that's why. And we're not going to break into the beatitudes fully this week. We'll we'll save that till next week because we're going to commune in a minute. But you know, I I just. <laughs> We, we've got to understand th- th- that the happiness that Jesus wants to give us isn't something that goes away, because if it does, what, what happens in this world, and we see it all the time, we see it in churches, it's the drive for more, for more, for more venue, for more of this. Why? Because we're, we're trying to stir an emotion in people. Because what happens is we realize it's one of the reasons, and I'll probably repeat this again too because it's just still in my heart, but I think it's one of the reasons that we see churches constantly rebranding themselves and reinventing themselves continually because what, what made people happy today or, or filled them, and I'll talk about when we get to the filling piece, you know, being full versus being hungry, but what was filling them today isn't going to fill them to, you know, yesterday isn't going to fill them today. If it's the wrong stuff, you see, if it's not the right things, it's, it's going to wear thin and we're going to want more. We're going to need more to keep it going. And that's how it is with the, the happiness of our flesh, the happiness of this world. Nothing wrong with it. God made us a people so we could laugh, right? It's the same in the scriptures about a merry heart, right? <laughs> it's like medicine. It's great. He gave us an emotion so that we could laugh, so we could have that. And yet he never wanted us to focus on our happiness being the things that this world would give us. But to look for happiness that transcends this world. You know, we can find happiness and still have sorrow simultaneously. We can still be grieved by things in this life and still have joy. I go back to my friend Dave. There was joy in his eyes. There was joy in his heart. There was a smile on his face, even though his body was racked with pain. You've been there. I've been there in situations. I've been in places where I've cried for people who've gone on to be with the Lord because of how much I would miss them. And yet there was joy inside because the joy transcended what I knew of my earthly physical connections because I understood what the Scriptures teach. And I had filled my life with the Scriptures, and I knew that there was better for that person in the Lord who knew the Lord and would go to be with Him, you see. I've cried for people who died who didn't know the Lord. And I was desperately weeping for them because I understood that their future was not the same as the person who knew the Lord. I think you're getting what I'm saying. And and that's the whole idea of the Beatitudes. When you hear this, and I'll use that term instead of just blessed be, oh, happy, oh, happy is the one. It's not happiness as the world thinks. It's happiness that goes beyond that.